Good morning again to everybody. If you will, open your Bibles to Hebrews. We're going to be looking primarily at chapter 8 this morning. Excuse me. Before we get started, I want to uh, let you know about something that I'm very excited about. The first Sunday in November, um, I think that's November the 5th, we are going to have an authentic Haitian meal here at this place, 530. Um, Lord's uh, family, his mother, Marie, is uh, apparently a wonderful cook, and uh, she has graciously offered uh, her services to, to give us a taste of what uh, Haitian fine dining is all about. And so I want you to know about this because uh, our small groups, we meet on Sunday nights. Uh, Most of us meet around that time, about 5.30 or 6 o'clock. So uh, make plans. That's, um, I guess, a month from today, the first Sunday in November. Make plans uh, to be here at 5.30. Uh, If you're in a small group, um, cancel that and come up here, and we're all going to meet. It's going to be a a wonderful time of fellowship, uh, but we're also using this as a fundraiser, okay? Uh, it's going to be a very affordable meal, but it is a fundraiser uh, because, as you know, we have committed to helping uh, Widlord's family as, as they're transitioning from Haiti here to America. Uh, a lot of costs, a lot of expenses go along with that, and there's still another sister and her family that uh, we're trying to get uh, from Haiti over here to America, so... Continue to be in prayer about that, but I just want to put that in your mind to make plans for November the 5th at 5.30, and that's going to be back, um, I guess we'll eat in the commons, Um, sounds as good as any place, so uh, put that on your calendar, write it in ink so that you do not forget it, November the 5th, 5.30. Someone has said that the Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The Gospels are Jesus revealed. The book of Acts is Jesus preached. The epistles, of which the book of Hebrews is one, is Jesus explained. And then the book of Revelation is Jesus expected. Jesus expected. I like that. Jesus predicted, he's revealed, he's preached, he's explained, and then he's expected. I want us to think about the book of Hebrews, and especially what we're talking about this morning in Hebrews chapter 8. I want you to think of this like a two-act play, okay? Many of you have been to see a play or a drama enacted on stage. I want you to think about a two-act play, If you were only to see the first act and then you left, you wouldn't know how it ended. You wouldn't know how things were resolved. But if you missed the first act and you only came in at act two, there'd be some things in your mind that you weren't quite sure. Why is this happening? Or what happened before that this is happening now? That's the, that's the way I want us to see this. Sometimes I think it's, 
it's been a disservice to us to have the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like we have divided that up and we forget that, that they go hand in hand. Act 1 and Act 2. Act 1 is explaining what is to come and acts, act, the, the second act is, is revealing all of that and it's coming to its fruition. You know, when I was a kid, it seemed like all of the great Bible stories that we learned came out of the Old Testament, right? Creation story and Adam and Eve, and then you had Noah and Abraham and Moses. All of these great stories, as a child, we learned from the Old Testament. But then as I got older, um, I think I was taught that that's, that's all in the past and in the New Testament. That's, that's what we're under today. We're not under that Old Testament. We're under the New Testament. So that's really where we need to spend you know, all of our time. But it's a two-act play, and, and, you, and you really don't understand one unless you understand both of them. Hebrews chapter 7, where we were in last Sunday, in Christ, we have a better hope. There's, there's a better covenant, a permanent priesthood, not like the priest of old, where uh, they, they came and they went. The high priest uh, as, as a priest, you served from the age of 25 to the age of 50, and then you were done. Now we have a permanent priesthood, a high priest that met the description, one who offered up himself. Back in chapter 7 and verse 26, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted, above the heavens. If we're going to have a high priest that really meets our needs, then he has to be holy. He has to be blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the high priest. None of those earthly high priests fit the bill. None of them fit that bill. So now in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, we do have that kind of high priest. And it's almost as if the Hebrew writer says, now I've said all of that to say this. You know, sometimes we do that. We'll, we'll have to fill in the backstory of, of a lot of stuff. Well, I said all of that to say this. He just comes out and he says, the point that I'm making, the point in all of, that I, of what I've said is this. The point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest. We do have that kind of a high priest, superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior even to Father Abraham. He's greater than them. The one to whom the Father has given the name that is above every name, the name that's greater than, than Buddha, that's greater than Confucius, that's greater than Mohammed, that's greater than Gandhi, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our high priest, that's the name. To a people who were, 
who were tempted to turn back. And as we've been saying over these last several weeks in our study in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer is writing to a people that have have started to follow Jesus, but for some reason, some crisis, they're tempted to go back. They're tempted to, to fall back into Judaism, that which they know, that which is familiar to them, to a people who were tempted to turn back, maybe because they just got caught up in the enthusiasm. They were following the crowd. They went along. You know, you know that happens sometimes. Sometimes we, we get excited. We see other people, you know, making this commitment, and that maybe I should do that. Maybe I need to make that commitment. They seem so happy. They seem so excited. Maybe we're at camp, and everybody else is going, and they're getting baptized, and we say, I, I need to do that as well. And maybe these people had gotten so caught up in this enthusiasm, but they're, they're at the back of the parade now, and they're wondering, is there anybody up there really leading us? Is there anyone up there really that's, Worth following? Has the enthusiasm died down and now I'm wondering about this commitment that I've made? Look over in chapter 12 briefly. The writer writes this. Chapter 12 and verse 3. We'll we'll come back to this in, in a couple of weeks. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Always encouraging them, don't lose heart. All of this is going to make sense, but you've got to continue to follow. You've got to put your trust in him. Do you ever, like, say around the holidays, some of you like to put together Jigsaw puzzles. Anybody like to do that? You get the card table out and you buy a, a, a jigsaw puzzle. I like the ones that are like 25 pieces, you know. <laughs> they're, they're bigger and it doesn't take long. And you're like, hey, I finished. I did it, you know. I love those kind. But the ones that are like a 1,000, you know, you, you, it's, it's such a beautiful picture. But you spread them all out and, and it's hard. But, but you, you kind of work and you get a little corner done. You know, you get a little outline of a corner. And maybe... You walk away from it, and, and you got family that's coming in, and, and people, nieces and nephews and uncles, and, and you come back, and, and a couple of days later, somebody's put together like five or six more pieces. They, they've stuck, and you're like, who did that? And then you stop, and you think, oh, and then you find another piece and another piece, and before you know it, it starts to take shape until finally that last, that last piece is in, Hopefully, you found all the pieces and, and none are missing. And then all of a sudden, it's a complete picture. So what the Hebrew writer, I think, is trying to do. He's trying to put all those pieces together so that the people understand, yes, yes, Jesus is worth it. He's worth following. Don't turn back. Don't give up on him. Let's look at our text this morning. The word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 8. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. 
Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. Verse 5 there. Where am I? Verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. It, the, the tabernacle was vested with meaning. It had great significance. And that's why God uh, gave very strict instructions to Moses um, to, to, to build it exactly the way that he, he laid it out for him. But in the end... It was just a pale reflection of what was the reality, the reality that it represented. Look over at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, up until, up until this time, there was a copy of a reality that was in heaven. Act, act one, the first act is a, is a copy. Act two is the reality. Act, the, the first act is a shadow of what is to come, and, and the second act is the reality of it. Jesus didn't walk into a shadow or into a copy. He walked into the very reality of heaven itself, and he spoke to God on our behalf. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, college football is, is in full swing, and hopefully your, your team did well yesterday and, and everybody's happy. My, I'm happy today. But I remember when I was a kid, there was, a, there was an electronic football game. It was an electric football game. I think it kind of came out in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. But it was like a miniature, you know, football field and you plugged it in and it had these little men that you would, you'd put on there. And then when you turn it on, it would vibrate and all the men would would kind of go in a direction, and sometimes they'd all go over to the sideline, and you'd have to stop them and, and reset it up, and you'd turn it on, and they'd start vibrating. And maybe your man might turn and go the wrong way, and you'd have to stop it. Anybody have one of those games? Yeah, men of a certain age, we, we understand that, you know. When I got a little bit older, there was this little handheld thing. I think it was made by Mattel, and it was a little bitty football field, and it basically was like little bitty lines. And you had a defense, and you could move up or down, you know, one space or two spaces. 
and, and it was little bitty lines that you would, you would try to run and make a touchdown. When I was in junior high school, I think it was late elementary or junior high school, those of you men of a certain age, we would take a sheet of notebook paper, maybe a, a sheet that we had, you know, turned our home, we should have had turned our homework in, but we would fold it over, and then we'd fold it over again, and then we would fold it like you were folding an American flag, and it was in a triangle, and you'd tuck it in, and then you would sit at the table, and you'd push it across the table, and you're trying to get the football to hang off the end of the table without falling off, and if it did, you scored a touchdown, right? And so then your friend, he would put his hands up like a field goal. And so then you, were, then you had to kick the extra point, the field goal. And you really wanted to make the field goal, but you also wanted to peg your friend right in the face. Right? Am I right? I mean, th this was, for, for men of a certain age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So you, you play football on this little bitty electric thing where they all, you know, or you push a, a piece of paper across a table. That's not really football, is it? If somebody came in and they'd never seen the game football, and they said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm playing football. That's, that's not football. The reason that that has any meaning at all is because you've seen the actual game of football. And so it's sort of a copy, a shadow of something that's real. But it's not the real thing. That's the way the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was just a copy, a shadow of what actually existed in heaven. That's why, you know, that's why God said, Moses, you got to make it exactly like I tell you, okay? And if you go back and you read the instructions of the tabernacle and, and the and all of the furnishings and, and how that they would have to weave and, and all that. I mean, it was laid out, and it was an extensive list. But, but God said, do it exactly like I tell you. Why? Because it was a copy of something that actually exists in heaven. The reality is in heaven. So Jesus, upon his resurrection, he didn't walk into a shadow, a copy of something. He walked into the tabernacle of heaven itself. And he speaks to God on our behalf. People ask, is there any way really to draw, to draw near to God? I mean, to get close to him? It seems like I pray and I pray and my, my prayers just keep hitting the ceiling and they never seem to get through. Is there any way that I could have access to the throne of God? And the Hebrew writer says, yes, absolutely there is. It's in the work of the high priest himself, and his name is Jesus, and he speaks to God on our behalf. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, we do have such a high priest. The end of verse 1, it says, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not for men. He sat down. That's pretty significant, guys, that Jesus sat down. Before Jesus, the high priest, 
in offering on a daily basis and also on an annual basis the Day of Atonement, he stood. The people would, would bring sacrifices. He offered sacrifices, and he stood. And then he quickly, almost as if he had to go back to the end of the queue, the end of the line, so that he could come again next year and make that annual sacrifice. On a daily basis, people would bring sacrifices. And he would stand before the people, and he would offer the sacrifice. He would slit the throat. He would take the blood. He would sprinkle it upon the altar. They would butcher that animal. He would take some. He would give some to the, to the one who was bringing the sacrifice. And he would do that again and again and again because his work was never done. Are you with me? His work was never done. When you entered into the tabernacle and later when you entered into the temple, guess what? No chairs. No chairs in the temple. No chairs in the tabernacle. Why? Because the work of the priest was never done. Jesus, hear me now. When Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle, the Hebrew writer says he sat down at the throne, the throne of the majesty. Why? Because it is finished. It's done. Now you say, well, what's Jesus doing? He's still praying for us. He's still interceding for us every day. Thank you, Jesus. But the work of sacrifice is over. He offered himself once and for all, for all time, for all people. And because of that, he sits down. His work is finished in that regard. Very significant. Jesus offered himself once and for all time. And once a man or a woman is gripped by that reality, it is just incomprehensible that you would want to spend time in the shadow because the reality has come. But surely someone back in the day, back in the first century says, you don't have a high priest. You don't have a high priest anymore. You're following this Jesus of Nazareth. You don't have a high priest to do, to, to do all the stuff, <laughs> to do all the stuff that has to be done to make you right with God. You see, that's what a priest did. He was the mediator between, between the man and between God, between the woman and between God to try to somehow bring them, help to bring them into a relationship with God by bringing the sacrifice time and again, day after day, year after year. And now the people are saying, yeah, we're following Jesus. And my friends are saying, we don't have a high priest, at least not here on the earth. We don't have a high priest here on the earth, that's right. Because if we had a high priest who was on the earth, he wouldn't be the kind of high priest that we really need. Because the high priest here on earth had to make sacrifices for himself. Why? Because he too was a sinner. But we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. 
So we don't need a high priest on earth. He's in heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus had to leave the earth. He told his disciples, he said, Oh, if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you, John 14. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be where I am. And they're like, no, don't, don't leave. Don't leave, Jesus. We need you here. We need you here. And, and, and in large part because they were thinking an earthly kingdom. They were thinking that this new Messiah was going to be like King David. Restore us. Restore Israel to a national power, a national prominence. No, Jesus, don't leave us. We need you here. Even in the garden, Peter was willing to, to, to fight, draw the sword so that Jesus doesn't have to die. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. P Jesus said, I've got, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, no, no. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of, of God, the things of heaven. You're thinking about things here. My kingdom's not of this world. I've got to leave because, guess what? Then I can send the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be way better. That's going to be way better than my presence here with you, the Holy Spirit. If Jesus were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Jesus is not of, of the tribe of Levi. Only priests could come from the tribe of Levi. He was not a descendant of Aaron. He was of the tribe of Judah. He couldn't be a priest here on earth. They serve in the sanctuary. It's just a copy. But the ministry that Jesus has, verse 6, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it's founded on better promises. Look at verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. In verse 6, you could write superior. And at verse 7, you could write necessity. It was necessary for there to be a new covenant. Was there something wrong? It says... If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no reason would have been sought for a new covenant. If Act 1 had been sufficient, we'd all still be living in Act 1. It was significant. Listen, it was significant. But Act 1 pointed us to Act 2. The first covenant was faulty. But the reason it was faulty, it says, because God found fault with the people. Was there something wrong with God's law? Was there something inferior about God's law? No. God gave it. It was good. It was right. It was holy. It was a, it was a way for God to separate people from all the other people groups and show that this is what a people who follow God's law looks like. It, he was trying to carve out Israel to be a light to all the other nations, to show them what someone who follows God looks like, how they live, how they act, how they treat people, how they love, how they have compassion, how they care for, the, for the, the orphan and the widow. The fault was not with, with the covenant, 
The fault was with the people trying to keep the covenant. I, I read a quote, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but let me just sort of paraphrase it. The fault, if there was a fault with the old covenant, it was that it made no provisions for the faultiness of those who were trying to keep it. Does that make any sense? It, it didn't truly make provision for the people that were trying to keep it. And God never intended it to. God never gave the law to save us. Romans, Paul makes it very clear in Romans, what the law was powerless to do, guess what? Jesus did. You see, God didn't lower his standard. God didn't lower his standard. He, he looks and he sees, oh, the people are making such a mess of this. They're not keeping my laws, and, 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 and they're just making a mockery of things. You know what? I'm going to reduce, I'm going to reduce the ten, and now we're just going to have five commandments because they're just, they're just not able to keep them all. That's not what he did. Did you ever have a teacher, you know, give you a test and you come back on, on a Monday morning, they give a test on Friday, you come back Monday and nobody did very well on it. And so the teacher says, okay, maybe I didn't do a great job teaching this, this subject and, and so now all the B's are going to be A's and all the, the C's are going to be B's and the D's are going to be, and the F's are going to be, and we're going we're gonna to grade on the curve. We're going to round everything up. Anybody ever have that? Yeah, you're, you're, you're pretty thankful, right? God does not do that. God didn't lower his standards. God doesn't grade on the curve, okay? God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on faith. He grades on grace. There is no, there is no lowering of standards. In fact, what he did, he sent his son to the earth who, who took on the likeness of man. He took on flesh. He became one of us. Why? so that he could keep the law. What we could not do, Jesus came and did. Are you with me? God sent a man, Jesus, and he, he kept the law. He did what all of Israel for all of the centuries could not do. He didn't lower the standard, but he finally found one who could keep it, and he kept it perfectly, even though he was tempted, even though Satan was throwing everything at him, tugging on him, pulling on him to, to get him to fall, to get him to sin. He wouldn't do it. He would not do it because he loved you, because he loved you, because he loved me. He never gave in, and so he kept the law perfectly. And so the writer now speaks of a new covenant. There was fault in the old one because God found fault with the people that were trying to keep the covenant. And now he gives this long um, quote from the book of Jeremiah. This is actually, I think, the longest quote of, of any Old Testament passage that we find in the New Testament. It's from the prophet Jeremiah, and he talks about a covenant which cannot be broken. The time is coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. He says there, there's a time coming. It's not here yet, but, but it's coming. This is written, I think, some 600, 700 years before Christ. The prophet Jeremiah is writing, and he says, there's going to come a time. We know what that time is because we know the back. We know the rest of the story. Hasn't come yet, but I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. What was that covenant? What was the covenant that God made with Moses and his people? God gave Moses the law. He wrote it down on a tablet of stone. Moses came down and, and, and crushed them. You remember when he, when he saw the people worshiping the, the golden calf, he had to go back up and God give him another set? What was that like? <laughs> you know, just think about that for a little bit. Moses has to go back up and say, God, I broke, I broke the tablets. God writes them out again. Here's, here's the transaction, okay? God said, these are my laws. You follow these laws, I will be your God. You will be my people. They entered into a covenant with God based on laws, the keeping of law, obedience. You obey, God says, I'll be your people. And all of the promises were external. Are you with me? All of the promises had to do with Going into the promised land, getting, getting land, getting an inheritance, uh, long life on the earth, your crops, I'll, I'll help your crops to grow, I'll fight your battles for you, I'll drive your enemies out, if you will obey me, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. That, that was the promise, but it was, all, it was all for the here and the now. It was all about the earth. It was all physical. It was all external. And God says, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a new covenant. It's not going to be like that old covenant. They didn't remain faithful to my old covenant. I turned away from them. He says, this, this is the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel. God made this with the house of Israel. You remember what Paul said in Romans 1? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes, first for the, the Jew, the house of Israel, and then for the Gentile. I'm so glad he said, and then for the Gentile, aren't you? Got any Gentiles in the house this morning? Yeah, we all are, I guess. But he made this covenant with the house of Israel. First, 
And that's exactly what Paul said. It's going to go to them first. But it was always meant to be a blessing for all the nations, all people of all time. He says, I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. It's not going to be on a a tablet of stone. It's not going to be a law that they have to keep in order for me to bless them. I'm going to write it in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. Notice he says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they'll all know me. What, we don't, need Bible, we don't need Bible class teachers anymore? We don't need preachers? We don't need teachers to teach our little ones? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm going re- to reveal myself. I'm going to give them my Holy Spirit. There's not going to be some secret room that you have to go to or some secret knowledge that you don't have that you have to, to learn about through someone. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to to give you my word, and I'm going to indwell you with my Holy Spirit. And and nobody's going to have to say, you have to do this, you have to know that, or or there's a special knowledge that you don't have that I have. No, no. All men will know me. Nobody will have to teach his neighbor because there's going to be an intimacy now. You don't have to to bring your sacrifice and and let the high priest offer it for you. You You can go right into the very throne room of God because you have a high priest whose name is Jesus, who came here and was like us, and now he's in the heavenlies, and he pleads for us. Oh, and notice what he says. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. That's maybe the greatest distinction between the Old and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant just provided an external framework where men and women could, you know, make some progress. But it never really took away their sins. The New Covenant, God says, it'll be in their their minds and in their hearts. Remember the psalmist said, oh, I love your laws. I love your... Your precepts, I meditate on them day and night. How is that possible? It's because God comes in, and instead of there being an external promise, God says, I'm going to come into their minds and in their hearts, and I'm going to transform them from the inside out. And so when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we begin to have a change of appetite, a change of desire, The Holy Spirit draws us into a closer fellowship and a communion with God, and we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why would we ever want to go back to a shadow when we have the reality? Why would we ever settle for something that the world offers when we have the reality of a heaven awaiting us? It's it's just, it's inconceivable, inconceivable. When God's people could not rise to his standards, he sent a son who did keep the commandments for us. He's our representative. He was our representative on earth, and now he represents us 
in heaven. The old covenant could not take away sin, it could not save, it could not justify, it could not put people in a right relationship with God. What is there in Canaan that's better than what is in heaven? Nothing. Nothing. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. He was writing to a people who still went to temple, who still made sacrifices, who still had a high priest. This was before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. He's writing to a people that are, are thinking about maybe turning back. Why, why are we following Jesus? We don't even have a high priest here anymore. The new covenant is based on better promises than the old covenant. The promise is that now, if we will put our faith in Jesus, there will be no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I cannot fathom that, how awesome that gift is. And when we do, it, it, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds as if, and, re, and the reason Paul had to write to the, to the church in Rome, they said, you know, we just get, we get all this grace when we sin? Is that what you're saying? That when we sin, the grace of God covers us? And we're not found guilty in his sight? And he says, yes. And so they well, we should just keep on sinning so that God's grace will just keep on flowing. And he says, no, 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 never. May it never be. We died to sin. We don't want to live in that any longer. The old, the old woman, the old man, the flesh is dead, and you've been, you've been resurrected with Christ. You don't want to live that way anymore. But it sounds too good to be true that the blood of Jesus just continually cleanses us from all of our sins. That's the promise that God will forgive your sins and he'll never remember them. You say, Rodney, that, <laughs> that sounds too good to be true. And it would be if it weren't true. But it is true. There were three crosses. On both sides of Jesus, there were thieves, robbers. And apparently at one time, while they were hanging there, being crucified, both of them were hurling insults at Jesus. But at some point, I, I, I don't know when it happened, maybe when when the thief looked over at Jesus and he heard him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't, I don't know when it was, but, it, but there was at some point while they're hanging there on a cross, he looks over at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Think about that man. You know, we, 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 always, we have these ideas about what heaven's going to be like. You know, we, 
the big pearly gate and you get to, to heaven and, you know, St. Peter's standing there and maybe some angels sitting at a desk and next and, and, and you walk up and, and here's this guy, this thief on the cross. And they say, what, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm in this line. They say, well, what, what did you do on earth? Well, you don't want to know too much about that. Well, how many Bible studies did you attend? Zero. How many Lord's Suppers did you take? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. How many prayers did you offer? Maybe one right there at the end. I don't know. Well, then why are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross, the man in the middle said I could come. That's our high priest. None of us are worthy, not a one of us. But Jesus said we could come if we would just put our faith in him.